What is this? What's going on here? What are you people doing here? What is this? Are you trying to trick me? You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then, hello and welcome back. This is Storytime, and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, I've got another Best of Storytime episode for you. You know, sometimes I might be out of town, sometimes I might have a busy work week, sometimes I might be sick. What I do, rather than rerun an episode, is I pull stories from some of the previous episodes... Some of the stories I've gotten a lot of comments on, some of my favorite stories, and I put them together in a best of episode just so you can hear them again. If you haven't heard the stories before, I hope you enjoy them. If you have heard the stories before, I hope you enjoy them again. So here you go. This is the best of story time. And I really wanted to learn to drive. And it started for me at an early age because I got to visit my aunt when I was about 11 years old. This would be my mom's sister. And I went up to upstate New York. That's where they lived. They had a 13-acre. It wasn't really a farm. It wasn't really an estate. It was a hunk of woods. And they lived out in the woods. And they were very remote up there. And part of this property was a giant field. And they had all kinds of vehicles. Because in upstate New York, you need all kinds of vehicles for all kinds of weather, whether you're going through the snow or through the open fields or whatever they were doing, they needed a specific vehicle for it. And the vehicle they had for driving through their fields was an old Ford Bronco. This was a beat up old rusty yellow Ford Bronco with a four speed transmission with the gear shift on the steering column, not on the floor. This was an early Ford Bronco that has an indeterminate age because at the age of 11, I have no idea what year it was or how old it was. It was just a cool looking vehicle. And my aunt said that I could drive it. Now, here I am, 11 years old, visiting my aunt. So I'm away from home, and you know none of the rules apply because it's, it's my aunt's house. So she was trying to make sure I had a good time. And part of the good time was putting me behind the wheel of a Ford Bronco. Oh, my God. I was in my glory. Wait, wait, wait. I get to sit in the driver's seat and put my feet on the gas and actually go... Oh my God, I was in my glory. I was, I was beside myself. So we drove out. Now, I didn't get to drive from the house out to the field because I had no idea. At 11 years old, I may have been five feet tall. So they, they probably had to push the seat up as far as it could go. And I, I, I don't remember having a difficult time reaching the pedals, but I'm sure that I did. But somehow I did. I reached the pedals. I reached the steering wheel. I had no idea how to use a clutch, so my aunt had to explain that to me, and my cousin was in the back, and um, he was there for moral support. He was a little older than I was, and he was a driver as well, because he drove all of the vehicles on 13 acres. You had to get around, whether it was with a a snowmobile or a four-wheeler or whatever it was. So he was aware, and it was his way of encouraging me to be in the back seat as I took my first jaunt in this big open field with this Ford Bronco. So I'm sitting in the driver's seat after I get out and work my way around and I'm all nervous and all upset and oh my God, uh, I'm excited and upset and thrilled and nervous and uh, I was beside myself because I so wanted to do it. I so wanted to do it right and I so wanted to just drive. It was so cool that I was going to be able to do it. I was so excited. Oh my God. So my aunt told me how to put the clutch in. For those who've never driven a manual, It's something that's a unique experience. It's not like driving an automatic where you just push the gas pedal and go. You actually have to put the clutch down and put the gear shift into first gear 
And then as you slowly let up with your left foot, you have to slowly push down with your right foot. So as the gear engages, you start moving the car forward. At 11 years old, this was a master class in coordination because it was not easy. Couple the fact that it's not an easy maneuver with the fact that I was beside myself with excitement. Suffice it to say, we had a few, shall we say, jerky starts. But we got it going. And I was driving through the field. They had a little trail and I could drive along the trail in first gear because we hadn't gotten to the shifting part yet. But I was in first gear driving along at the frightening speed of seven miles an hour. But oh my God, I was, I was driving. It was so exciting. I was thrilled that I was driving a car at the age of 11. One of the first things that I learned about cooking and baking, I actually learned from my father. I always wanted to learn how to make the cakes that my grandmother made or that my mother made. My grandmother, my dad's mom, was a very good baker, and so he learned how to bake from her. Baking, and here's the tip that I'm going to give you for your use, baking is very, very simple if you can follow directions. Find a recipe, look at the recipe, get all the ingredients together, and just follow it step by step. It's really, really easy. I didn't used to think so, but my dad taught me how easy it was. And actually, this is some of the bonding time that I had with my dad was in the kitchen. He taught me how to bake. Not my mom. My mom could bake too, but my dad is the one who taught me how to bake a cake. And I remember clearly standing in the kitchen with him, and he showed me from the beginning, when you see a recipe that calls for creaming the butter, I know where your mind is. Stop it. Creaming the butter is something entirely different than what you're thinking, you evil people. Creaming the butter has to do with taking softened butter in a mixing bowl and using a wooden or metal spoon, spreading it and working it and moving it around the bowl so that it's almost fluffy. I know you find that hard to believe, but if you do it correctly, you get nice, smooth, creamy butter, which is important for making cookies. I know you're going to say, Gamer Dude, is this whole episode about recipes? No, it's about the experience of cooking and the experience of baking. Because when I was standing there and my dad was showing me how to cream butter, it was, it was important to learn, but it was also a bonding moment. I remember it to this day. I remember it like it was yesterday. And this was a lot of yesterdays ago. It was one of those moments, for whatever reason, that stuck with me. Because that whole recipe process, the creaming the butter, the adding the sugar to it, my dad took the time to show me how to measure butter. And he showed me how to measure butter if you didn't have a full stick of butter, but you had a lot of little pieces of butter. He showed me how to measure butter by putting it in a measuring cup and adding water because butter floats. It's a mathematical equation, but it was like a miraculous revelation to me. I said, oh, there is a way to do that. And my dad knew this stuff. And he took me step by step through the recipe from the creaming the butter, adding the sugar, mixing the dry ingredients. He told me the importance of keeping dry ingredients separate from the wet ingredients, which is the butter, the egg, and the sugar. And he told me why that was important. He explained to me that when you put baking soda or baking powder and flour and salt together, you're actually creating a chemical that will react with the wet ingredients. But the chemical reaction doesn't start until you mix them together, and that's why you keep them separate. Now, I remember this stuff. He took the time to explain it to me, and it made sense to me. Now, maybe you don't care that it's a chemical reaction, but trust me when I tell you, when you see a recipe that says, keep the dry ingredients separate, keep the wet ingredients separate, there's a reason for that, so just do it. But my dad took the time to explain it to me, and I understood it. 
So after we got through the mixing the ingredients, he showed me how to grease and flour a pan. What does that mean? Well, when you're baking something, greasing and flouring a pan is important so the cake doesn't stick to it. And when I'm talking about a pan, I'm talking about an actual cake pan. There are actual cake pans. Not everybody knows this these days because not everybody bakes like they used to. But you can get two cake pans at your local dollar store for a buck a piece, and you can go ahead and start making cakes in them. I still have the cake pans that my mother was using when I was a kid because they last for freaking ever. And they still work well, and all you have to do is grease them, flour them, put your batter in, and boom. But he showed me the process and why it's important. And so I learned how to do that, and I learned why I did that. And then he showed me how to measure the batter into each of the pans, because you never fill a pan up, because as you bake the batter, it rises. So if you fill a pan up, you'll have one very thick layer and one very thin layer, because there's never enough cake batter to fill two pans. But there is enough cake batter to fill two pans two-thirds full. And that's how you get even layers. And this is the stuff that he took time to explain to me. So from there, he took me through um, how to tell when the cake is done. And yes, you can cook it for 25 to 27 minutes or whatever the recipe calls for. And that's certainly a good way to determine. You just check it on the clock. But he also explained not all ovens are the same temperature. And he showed me how to use a toothpick or a knife if you don't have a toothpick on how to determine whether a cake is done. And all you do is take the toothpick and push it into the center of the cake and pull it out. And if it comes out clean, the cake is done. And if there's stuff stuck to it, that means the cake's not done yet, and you leave it cooked for a couple more minutes. Little things like that he walked me through. And that's why it stayed with me, because not only was it me spending time with my dad, but it was me spending time with my dad doing something that was important to me, which was learning how to make a cake. Now, people talk about the golden age of television as the 50s, when it first really started catching on across the country. There was television in the 30s and the 40s, but it was really only becoming a real big thing in the 50s, when the networks formed and I Love Lucy came around. And yes, I'm not that old. I wasn't there when I Love Lucy came around. It looks like it, but I wasn't. I swear to God. I watched a lot of I Love Lucy in rerun, thanks to syndication, which is one of the things we're going to talk about. But for me, the golden age of television was my golden age of television when I was growing up. Television caught my imagination. It was everywhere. It was the thing that we focused on. Now, these days, it's very different. When I was growing up, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, and I've talked about this on the stream. Essentially, when I grew up, there were three major networks. There was ABC, CBS, and NBC. There wasn't Fox. Fox didn't exist when I was a kid. There was no CW. There weren't other options. There was no Netflix. There was, there was no internet when I was a kid. Well, there was an internet. It just wasn't the way it is now. Now, I happened to live close enough to New York City, so we also had what were called local stations that ran shows in syndication. And we had three major local stations, WNEW, which was Channel 5 for us, WPIX, which was Channel 11 for us, and WOR, which was Channel 9 for us. So we essentially had six TV stations to watch. And because you only had six TV stations and three major networks, watching television was essentially appointment TV because we didn't have DVRs, we didn't have VCRs, we didn't have any way to record a show, we didn't have a way to re-watch a show if you missed it. So if you wanted to see, for instance... Happy Days on Tuesday night, you had to be sitting at your TV at 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. And if you didn't see it, you missed the episode, and there was no way to see it again unless it happened to come around in summer reruns. 
What are summer reruns, you say? Well, you all know that they rerun shows, of course. But back in the day, the TV seasons were very, very different. A TV season when I was a kid for a major network show was anywhere between 25 and 35 episodes. And if you look at some of the old shows, like Gomer Pyle, for instance, you could see they would put out 35 episodes in a season. Now, we all know there's 52 weeks in a year, so they put out a new episode for more than half the year, and you would get 35 episodes of Gomer Pyle in the season. And then for the summer, they would just rerun some of those episodes to carry it over to the next season. And seasons always started in September. I don't know why, but the new fall season started in September. I figure it's because summer is over and the kids are back at school and everybody's back into a regular routine. I've never really researched it. I just assumed that was the the way they did it, and it makes a certain amount of sense. But summer was always rerun time, so if you happened to miss that episode on Tuesday Night of Happy Days, you would cross your fingers and hope they ran it in summer reruns so you could catch it again. Or you'd have to talk to your friends about it. What happened? What happened? What happened? There was no way to catch up on shows, so you just had to watch the show when it was aired. So TV became very habitual. If you wanted to see your shows, you had to have your schedule set. You knew Tuesday nights was Happy Days, Wednesday night was Starsky and Hutch, Thursday night was Barney Miller. It's funny, I still remember certain of the schedules because they were in my head. I Oh, I watched that show, yep, and it started at this time and that day, and that's when we watched it. And you made it a habit. That's just the way it worked. Now, the local stations would run older shows in syndication, just like they do now. I mean, the older shows now in syndications are ones that I was watching when they were first run. But when I was a kid, they would run things like Andy Griffith. The Andy Griffith show was on in the 60s, and uh, they were running it in syndication in the 70s. Actually, they're still running it in syndication if you look in the right places. And they would run things like The Brady Bunch and The Munsters and The Addams Family. Uh, Those were all the shows that were on in the afternoons or in that early evening slot between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. before the network shows started. So you could catch episodes of Bewitched or I Dream of Genie. Those were all the syndicated shows that we watched, and they would just run those all day long to fill in the schedule. They didn't have a lot of new programming in the afternoon. There was no talk shows. There was no The Talk or Oprah or Ellen. Those didn't come out until the 70s and the 80s, and even those are not the early ones. Phil Donahue was one of the early talk shows, and they were so boring. Oh, I didn't watch those. Sally Jesse Raphael. She was another one of the early talk show hosts. Go Google her if you want to see somebody with some really big glasses. But she was a big voice on daytime TV. But that's something they started running instead of syndicated reruns in the hopes of getting bigger ratings and bigger advertiser dollars. And we kids, didn't, we didn't care about that. Oh, who cares about Phil Donahue? Big deal. But watching syndicated shows like Gilligan's Island or I Dream of Genie, that's where we learned about the early 60s TV shows and where we learned about basic sitcom premises and the setup and the joke and the dumb parents and the smart kids and all that kind of thing. That's where it all started, and a lot of sitcoms these days follow the template that was set back then. My basketball skills also stayed in play through all the three nights a week of basketball that I was playing, uh, because as many of you know, I worked in radio. And one of the things that I was able to do was convince the owner of the radio station that we should have a team that we could go around and make appearances with. I got the idea from some of the football teams and some of the baseball teams that would field 
you know, retirees from the team to go around as goodwill ambassadors for the Giants, for instance, and play basketball against the faculty of your high school. And I thought, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So I convinced the owner of the station that the air staff, the news staff, the salespeople should all form the WRNJ All-Stars. And we were a basketball team. And so what we did was we would advertise on the air as a charity fundraiser if they would like to have us come to their school or their facility, the Lions Club, uh, the Moose Lodge, the high school, whatever school or organization was interested in doing a fundraiser where you could play basketball against the WRNJ All-Stars, we would show up and play. We didn't guarantee a win. We didn't guarantee a loss. We guaranteed a good game and fun to be had by all. And so we did that a couple of times. We were able to do a couple of fundraisers. One of the greatest moments for me was when my old high school, which was, which was in the listening area of my radio station, agreed to have us in to play basketball against the high school staff. This was awesome for me because I never played high school basketball. I would have loved to, but this was almost as good because I was playing basketball on my high school court against the teachers that I had when I was in school. It was awesome. We lost that game, but it was still awesome. I got to make some diving plays, and I got to make some running jump shots, and I got to make all kinds of amazing, in my mind, plays in front of the people that I at one time went to school with. It was great fun. The best game, though, as one of the WRNJ All-Stars, and this is my sporting moment of my life. I know, it's a very low bar because I didn't have many. But the sporting moment of my life is the game we played against the local high school, not the one that I went to, mine was a regional school. This was the local high school in the town where the radio station was. And we were running the All-Stars against the local high school staff. And all the pomp and circumstance you expect from an All-Star basketball game was there. The auditorium was filled to overflowing. There was probably 200 people there. But boy, it felt like it was full to overflowing. The crowd was going crazy. It really was. I mean, for a bunch of local radio disc jockeys and local high school teachers, the place was a frenzy. I remember it to this day. It was crazy loud in there. And it was the biggest crowd that I've ever played in front of. And it was amazing to just march out there and have the team around me. And it was as close as I'll ever come to that moment that everybody hears about in sports where the crowd has you motivated, the adrenaline's pumping, you're all so excited. It was that moment. It was that moment where you can feel your heart beating in your chest. You can feel the butterflies in your stomach. You feel the sweat pouring off your brow as you're getting pumped up for this game because the crowd was into it. The team was into it and everybody was watching. It was great. It was everything that I thought that it would be. And the game was a really good game. I don't remember the final score, but I remember it being a back and forth game throughout the entire game. I remember trading baskets, going up by four, going down by four. It was back and forth through the first half. Then there was the halftime break, and then we had the second 10-minute half. We were playing 10-minute halves, of course. And I remember the clock winding down, and we had timeouts, and we had fouls, and we had referees, and it was all of the pomp and circumstance that goes with a game like that. And we're down to the last five seconds, and we have a timeout. And we're trying to call the last play. Now, I'm six feet tall. I was the point guard on the team. We had a couple of forwards who were 6'3", 6'4". We had a couple other guards. We had a center who was about 6'4". We had a couple of good shooters. I've always been a decent shooter. I've never been a lights-out shooter, but I've always been a decent shooter. So I thought that the play, of course, me being me, I thought the play should come to me. 
It didn't. The tall guys were planning the play, and I said, fine, whatever. One of the tall guys happened to be the owner of the station. Who am I to countermand what the owner of the station wanted to do? He was on the floor. He wanted to play. You get to call the play, sir. Go right ahead. So he and the other tall guy worked out the play between them. And I was off on the wing on the baseline. And the clock is ticking down. The ball is inbounded to the one tall guy at the top of the key. And he passes it inside the lane to the other tall guy who's about 10 feet out. And he takes a shot. And the clock is winding down. And the shot bounces off the rim. And I crash the board. And I remember going up as high as my little six-foot frame would go, which was about six feet, two inches. But somehow, somehow, I got the rebound. It was a clean rebound. There was nobody around. I went right back up with the rebound, banked it off the glass, swoosh, right through the net. The buzzer goes off. We won by one point. The only buzzer beater in my entire life. And it was glorious. And to this day, I still get a chill thinking about that. Because it was a buzzer beater with a crowd watching, with everybody going wild, with the team surrounding me going, it was amazing. And it's a feeling I'll never forget. And I think that's why we play sports. Even if you're the weekend warrior, even if you're the guy who plays once a week, once a month, once every couple of months, those moments... Those moments where your adrenaline's pumping, where you get the winning shot, where everything comes together, that's what we live for. And that's what makes sports so much fun. That's going to do it for this episode of Storytime. Thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate you listening to all of the episodes, including this best of episode. Hope you liked it. If you have any suggestions or stories you'd like to hear on future best of episodes, message me on Twitter, whisper me on Twitch, Just let me know. We'll find those stories. We'll put them up in future episodes. Thanks again, guys. Until next time, you take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.